passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All I know is there's been a love-hate relationship with me and the UFC the whole time I've been in this in this organization, but at the end of the day, I love the UFC. Uh, shout out to Dana White, Lorenzo Fertitta, and Hunter Campbell for giving the opportunities and the platform the whole time for, for everybody and for myself. I, I feel like I'm the most, right now, I feel like I've had the longest career in the UFC and I've had the most successful one. At everybody, I outdid everybody on pay. I outdid everybody on surviving. And uh, I wanna, uh, I wanna get out of the UFC for a minute and uh, show all these UFC fighters how to uh, take over and uh, own up another sport, how you're supposed to do it. Because Conor McGregor didn't know how to do it, and uh, none of these other fighters know how to do it. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go out there. I'm gonna take over another 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 profession and become the best at that. Show everybody I'm the best at that. And then I'm gonna be right back here to get a UFC title, the best title in the world. Are you talking about boxing? Are you talking about leaving the UFC and going to boxing? I'm just gonna show I show everybody how to own another sport. So. I'll out there trying to run the other sports, boxing, kickboxing, jujitsu, other MMA organizations. If you think you're the top, creme de la creme right here. I'm coming for you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to your UFC 279 post show. I am John Pollock, and joining me is the great Eric Marcotte, who is here with us. How are you doing, Eric, on a Sunday, literally one minute afternoon? I'm doing well. Uh, a lot better than I would have been at uh, 2 a.m. or whenever we would have recorded this if we decided to go uh, directly after the pay-per-view. Yes, folks. So here, here is the update of the, the post-MMA coverage. So uh, Eric has, has dutifully uh, stepped in, and uh, we are going to be continuing these post-shows. But I'm going to say that doing these Saturday at 1.30, that typically goes till 2.30, and then spending another 45 minutes uploading these when I've got to be up at uh, uh, this morning. I have to get up with my kids at 545 in the morning. I will die. I, I will die continuing to do these under that old schedule. So I'm thinking that we are probably going to be doing these on on the Sunday. And we'll have a consistent start time. Noon maybe uh, the start time that is easiest for everyone. And I understand the immediacy of doing these immediately right after them, but also like it, it's very difficult to do these just uh, for, for my schedule. And we would like to continue these. And uh, and you know what, Eric, Eric drives a hard bargain too. he said, listen, Pollock, I will do this, but I'm writing all night. I don't want to talk to you after writing all night long. I need I need some some space from from an event before I discuss. I had to put my foot down. I mean, these are long cards, six, seven hours. I, I can't uh, keep talking about the card after I'm done watching it. I need time to digest what I saw and really think about it. 
Well, you'll get a come down over the next few weeks as you go from like a sold out T-Mobile arena with a five and a half million dollar gate to uh, we're going to run the apex again. Like it, it, it seems wild that this company is like red hot on fire and it just tells you like the economic sense it must make for them to just run these cards in the apex where, I mean, it's very like you own the building. You don't have to do a whole lot of promotion for it. They do well numbers wise on ESPN, but it just feels like such a... It, it just blows your mind that you're watching this card tonight and next week we'll be back in front of a couple hundred people in a gym. I mean, it's a great deal for them. They get to run these cards. They don't really have to stack any names on it, which gives them, uh, well, perhaps not. Perhaps this pay-per-view is a bad example, but on a lot of the recent pay-per-views, they've been stacked with a lot more names on the main card, even on the prelims, because they don't really have to sell tickets for these fight night cards. So it's uh, it's a system that's worked out for them throughout these last couple of years. So let's rewind to Friday and the fallout of the chaos at the press conference that we thought would be the biggest uh, problems that the card would face. But then the weigh-ins hit, one of the most disastrous weigh-in days in UFC history. Uh, The end result was all these catchweight fights, including the top three fights, essentially going through a game of musical chairs where everybody got a new opponent, but they didn't lose anyone on the card. So once this whole uh, mixing and matching was done, uh, what did you think of the new construction of the main card? I mean, you used the word disaster, but uh, in reality, I'm not sure things could have worked out any better for the UFC because going into this card, I don't think very many people were interested in it. Even if we look at uh, the top fight going into it, Hamza Chimea versus Nate Diaz, everyone was expecting that to be a... very quick, uncompetitive uh, victory for Hamza Chimeyev. I, I don't think that it was a fight that was actually drawing a lot of people in despite the star power. All this madness happens on week of. First, you have their post-fight presser or uh, sorry, pre-fight press conference being canceled because of some incident backstage of Chimeyev and Kevin Holland and Nate Diaz's team. So you get a bit of interest that way. And then all the weigh-in shenanigans the next day where like three fighters missed weight, Hamza misses by a, an extreme amount. Seven and and a half pounds he came in over and you you have you have never seen a guy who had so little uh, uh, apology in him for missing the way he was like, nah, cool. He just was like fine with it. And uh, and it ended up, you know, that was the catalyst to shift this around. There was obviously a lot of leverage on the Nate Diaz side to if they wanted to keep this apart, this card together. um, You know, you you needed Nate Diaz, I feel, on this card or it would have been, um, you know. Hamza Chimaev and Kevin Holland in, in your main event. Definitely. I mean, I was looking at it uh, when the news first broke that Chimaev was missing weight by such an extreme amount. I was thinking to myself, okay, if Nate Diaz isn't fighting on this card, can they even continue forward with it being a pay-per-view event, considering just what the card looked like? But uh, in at the end of the day, uh, Nate Diaz agrees to fight Tony Ferguson in a five-round fight. That's a far more competitive fight on paper, and I'd say Ferguson is probably a bigger name than Hamza Chimaev as well. So I, I think things ended up working out for the UFC quite well here, all things considered. Yeah, I mean, it was it was reiterated throughout the broadcast by Joe Rogan. It's it's a lot more competitive fights. And, and sometimes you're listening to that and it's promotional speak. I don't think in this case, I thought that we got overall outside of Li Jingliang, who to me was just the one who got the short end of the stick all week long and including with his opponent. But in terms of I thought this was a much more competitive fight for Nate Diaz and for his fan base that this was. This almost felt like a like a funeral procession for Nate Diaz in the fight week lead up to the, this fight with, with Chimaev. Uh, for Ferguson, I, I think 
it was overall a more intriguing main event because it was a much more competitive one. And just based off of the the backstage incident, I think that Chemayev and Kevin Holland was a more interesting fight for each of them, respectively. Yeah, as wild as this fight week was, I think things ended up working out very well for the UFC. All the matchups in different ways were a bit more intriguing. And like I said, Ferguson versus Diaz is probably a better pay-per-view headliner to sell your card on than Diaz versus Hamza Chimeyev was. So Dana White did note afterwards that, you know, when the main event switched, they did offer refunds and said not one ticket was refunded. And in fact, during the the chaos of Friday, they actually sold 250 tickets that day. So it turned out to be a a net positive for them. And they announced 19,125 at the T-Mobile Arena and a gate of $5.67 million. So everybody, the UFC is just, they're just swimming in money right now. They're doing okay. Good on them. (laughs) they're gonna have an okay year so nate diaz and tony ferguson was your new welterweight five round main event and for the hell of it they made uh chemayev and kevin holland five rounds as well as uh chemayev had been training for a five round fight uh kevin holland had not although that would that would be completely uh unnecessary uh that they would need that that amount of time but let us chat about the main event first and that was nate diaz and tony ferguson and immediately uh Tony Ferguson's shin, he like checks a leg kick and this thing, he looked like he was auditioning for Evil Dead or something because this thing was just flowing at a ridiculous amount and it just bled for the entire fight. They noted how his corner like didn't even either didn't notice it or didn't care. They didn't even like wipe it down. It was just this open wound uh, that was just bleeding profusely for the time that the fight lasted. Yeah, it was a nasty cut. He was bleeding heavily from that shin. I mean, it wasn't in a dangerous area or anything where the fight was in danger of being stopped, but it was something you couldn't take your eyes off of throughout the fight, especially because, as we'll get into, he was throwing out a lot of leg kicks. Yeah, Ferguson was doing this technique where he was constantly like shifting to his side and his corner was just on him to cut that out, stop doing it. Um, We, we had both with some interesting tactics that they were trying to employ to throw off their opponent or just... I guess, entertain the audience. Diaz starts tagging him, cracks him with a right. And the difference here was that, you know, if Ferguson landed something, it was like, okay, he landed. When Diaz landed, it was like the scoring the goal in the overtime of game seven. Like they erupted anytime this man connected with, with anything. He ends with a big combination uh, into the second we go. Each are landing with kicks, uh, but it's Ferguson using a, a combination, including his uppercuts. But Diaz, um, just throwing out volume with his one-two combinations. But we're starting to see Ferguson really have some success with the inside leg kicks. And that would pick up a lot in the third round because he kicks the lead leg of Nate. And dude, Nate just stops and he just like yells in pain. Like, oh my God, what just uh, hit him? And this is when Diaz just starts this uh, strategy of like circling around the cage, avoiding Ferguson. Like you're almost expecting him to get called for like timidity here. And he's shaking his head. Like, I don't want to fight. And you're almost thinking like, is he just stopping here? Because like Eric, like there's been instances like you almost like if you turn your back, like that's essentially you are throwing the fight at this point. We were getting very close to that in this with Nate Diaz and didn't know what he was trying to accomplish here. Nate Diaz is a very, uh, 
interesting uh, individual, uh, as is his brother. And uh, it was tough to, it, it can be tough to gauge exactly what he's trying to convey at times. And that was especially the case with his body language and his antics in this third round. But to me, it definitely looked like Nate Diaz was saying, I am in a lot of pain. And at this point, I'm thinking the the momentum of the fight is starting to shift towards Tony Ferguson because Nate Diaz is having a lot of trouble with that lead leg of his. But uh, the fight continued and the momentum soon shift. Yeah, Ferguson is targeting the legs, but Diaz is, is he is frustrated, but he did come on strong near the end. He had some strong flurries and that sets the stage for round four. Uh, Diaz just starts unloading, backing up Ferguson and Ferguson is again trying to go for the low kicks. There's some big shots by Diaz and Tony Ferguson decides it's now time to wrestle and he shoots for, a, I guess, an ill-advised takedown because he just plants himself in perfect place. For a guillotine by Nate Diaz, he cranks this thing and submits Tony Ferguson at 2.52 of the fourth round. This place explodes, and Nate Diaz wins in his final fight on his existing UFC contract. Yeah, um, a strange fight, as you would expect from these two, but I'd say a relatively fun one as well, which uh, was not the case with our original main event, or at least I don't think it would have been the case. Um how did you have it going into the fourth round on your score? I had Nate Diaz up two rounds to one. I did give the third round to Tony Ferguson because I thought the uh, leg kicks were the most significant damage done throughout the round, uh, despite Nate coming on late. Um, Same I, with me. I, I will say it, it was a bit sad to see Tony Ferguson uh, in the state he is now. He's a lot slower than he used to be. There's been a lot of uh, leg injuries and a lot of miles uh, on that tank. He's still a fun fighter, of course, but... If if uh, I told you five years ago that Nate Diaz and Tony Ferguson were fighting, first off, you would not think it would, would have been a competitive fight. And then second off, if I told you that uh, Tony Ferguson was going to fight Nate Diaz and Nate Diaz was going to end the fight without a single cut on him, then uh, that, that might be the most shocking line of all. But uh, he was turning his back a lot. He wasn't taking the shots from Diaz well. He was having trouble escaping Nate whenever Nate went on the attack. Uh, his ill-advised takedown, his corner was telling him to go for takedowns when I, I don't think that was the best strategy when he had done so much damage to Nate's lead leg. Uh, it, it was it was definitely uh, a bit sad, but at the same time, that's the realities of our sport, right? Yeah, th- this was one where I, I'm with you. Like for Tony Ferguson, this is his fifth loss in a row, and people are going to look at the quality of names he, he has fought in, in this stretch going back, you know, Gaethje, Oliveira, Dariush, Chandler, um, now Nate Diaz, but uh, he was much slower here. Um, afterwards, he was interviewed, and you're wondering what he's going to to say here, and he just gave the message, I'm back, I'm back, and I, I don't know what level of competition you're going to be giving towards Tony Ferguson. Uh, coming up to welterweight, um, I, I didn't, it's not like he's been at Jackson Winkle Johns for so long that you would expect that there would be this gigantic change to his game. It's just, there hasn't been enough time. He only was added to this card a couple of weeks ago. So I, I, I don't know. I, I see somebody that is, you know, at the tail end of their career, but is obviously moving forward. And it, it makes you wonder like what level of fight fight hers he's going to be matched with in the future. I mean, he still has enough name value that I think, and he's still a, a more uh, entertaining fighter. So perhaps you can match him up against uh, 
fighters in a similar stage of their career. Say at welterweight, you could put them against the likes of uh, Matt Brown or Robbie Lawler, and I think you could get people excited for that. But I don't know if his days of competing against uh, ranked talent, uh, those may be behind him at this point. And Diaz uh, was interviewed and asked about his future, and he indicated that he's going to leave the UFC for a minute to go to another profession, take over that profession and show everyone how it's done. And then he's going to come back to the UFC and win a championship. Um, he was, uh, he, he never stated the name Jake Paul, didn't even state boxing. Um, you know, he is starting up his, his own promotion and was uh, promoting that at the press conference afterward. But that, that seems to be his immediate goals. Uh, yes, uh, his immediate goals, as uh, vague as they are, and uh, with, with Nate Diaz, you can never be sure uh, exactly what his next move will be. He's an unpredictable man, but I'm thinking we probably see Nate Diaz doing some boxing next, and uh, win or lose, he will decide that he is now the champion of that sport. And uh, Are there we'll fights for him beyond Jake Paul? Like, are there, are there, you know, commercially viable paydays for him beyond... Like Jake Paul, because, you know, Jake Paul's got this fight with with Anderson Silva. And I would certainly question like where we're at on on the Jake Paul um, experiment in terms of just the the appeal that he has. I think it will jump up a bit for this Anderson Silva fight. And you would have to imagine that a fight with Nate Diaz, it's going to command interest. I don't know if it's going to command this gigantic amount that some people believe it will. But that remains to be seen. It's interesting. I mean, with Jake Paul uh, scheduled to fight Anderson Silva, Anderson Silva is a is a much bigger name than Tyron Woodley or Ben Askren. So I, I can see there being more interest in that fight than his last uh, trio of fights. Uh, the the last two apparently did not do great on pay per view. But uh, as as far this as this is also a very winnable fight for Anderson Silva. Yes, Anderson, uh, despite his age, has shown uh, he's quite the competent boxer, even at nearly, what, 50 years old at this point. But he's 47 uh, now, yeah, it, so it's uh, age that, is that, not on his side. But Age I mean, is this... not on his side, but he's still a very skilled fighter, uh, clearly the best boxer that Jake Paul's been in there with to this point. Uh, I, I do think a Nate Diaz fight, Nate has such name value himself. He's a great fight promoter in his own right. I, I do think people would be interested in that Jake Paul one, would people be as interested in that as they would be in Nate Diaz fighting Dustin Poirier or Michael Chandler or Conor or McGregor, McGregor, of course. Yeah, that's no, the... I don't think they would be. So I, I'm not sure how long Nate will uh, venture outside of the UFC. Yeah, I mean, from what you can take from his comments, like it certainly seems like his... I would imagine like him and his team, like they do have a a playbook in mind of go go to boxing, get the Jake Paul fight, if something else arises, great. But I think ultimately, I think he wants to do that, that Conor McGregor fight before all, all is said and done. That represents just, you know, he's 37 at this point. You're looking for what is going to be the most significant uh, final paydays of my career. And Jake Paul is a question mark. But I, I believe that win or lose against Anderson Silva, there will still be some novelty to, to that fight happening as a boxing fight. And then the hopes of, doing a third Conor fight, which I, I never guarantee anything when it comes to Conor McGregor and where this guy will be in, in six months, in six months, much less a year or two from now. Uh, of course, Nate didn't specify boxing. Perhaps he's off to do a couple jujitsu tournaments, uh, work on his wrestling a bit, come back as a very well-rounded fighter. Could uh, do the G1. 
yeah, he could do the G1. He'd be better than Yujiro. But uh, no, I do think boxing is the most likely uh, next fight for Nate Diaz at the very least. So that was uh, that was the main event, and that shifted uh, Hamzat Chemaev to uh, the co-feature with Kevin Holland, 180-pound catchweight, uh, because the way this was set up was Holland and Daniel Rodriguez were late additions to this main card, so they had agreed to a 180-pound catchweight. So when Chemaev came in at 178.5 pounds, well, he was only one pound below what Holland weighed in at, so this was our new fight. And yes, if you're doing the math, that means uh, poor Li Jingliang weighed in at well weight and had to fight the other guy who was going to have a 180 pound catch weight but we will get to uh the the leech in his un- unfortunate week but uh chemayev and holland uh chemayev just sprinted out here after numerous altercations all week long and immediately goes for the takedown on holland and is aggressively just trying to uh waist lock him hold him down to the mat holland is trying to fight him off it's a relentless pace by chemayev that certainly questions eric like this guy coming out at this level of a pace of how long he could keep it up with if, if he could not have finished this fight i mean this was not a guy pacing himself for five rounds this was a guy barely pacing himself for one round he he definitely had no intention of this fight going long, but I do believe this was an instance of a guy going in saying, okay, Kevin Holland, his strengths do not lie in the area of wrestling. I can finish this fight quickly, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. Yeah, he, he worked for the Dars. Holland tried his best to defend it, but Chemayev just kept repositioning and finally got it very tight and gets to tap two minutes and 13 seconds of the first round. And then afterwards, Chemayev, he was kind of grilled here by, by Joe Rogan, not the typical role that Joe Rogan plays in these post-fight interviews, but at, like asking him about why he didn't make weight and really pushing him when he got a vague answer and stating that, you know, the doctor made him stop. He doesn't care. Uh, he's he's coming after everyone. He's going to kill everybody. I mean, just going nuts here. And this crowd hates Chemayev. And he really played into that villain role. Um, it was a dominant performance. I mean, if you're going to miss weight by seven and a half pounds, this is the kind of performance you need to come out and have. But it does bring up that question of... Um, does this guy need at least another fight at welterweight to prove he can make this weight before you're booking him in a, in a championship fight, despite you know th- this highlight reel finish that he had? I, I definitely don't think he's looking at a title fight in his next bout anymore. Uh, uh, he needed to make weight. Uh, missing by, what, what was it, eight and a half pounds, that's, that's a brutal weight miss. Yeah, and, like, like for a championship fight, it's like that, you know, he was... Not having the one pound allowance, yeah, like you're eight and a half off championship weight. And they have a sensible next direction at welterweight right now with Edwards versus Usman three likely being their uh, their next title fight. So I do think Hamzat Chimaev is going to have to fight uh, one more time, uh, perhaps against one of the top contenders of the division. Uh, Colby Covington is a name that comes to mind, but um, well, we'll see what happens next. In his post-fight interview, yeah, he really played up the heel persona. Uh, he didn't endear himself to anybody, but perhaps from a marketing perspective, that was the right way to go after the events of this last week. Yeah, um, Colby Covington's a, a, an interesting option. I mean, Dana White was throwing out the idea that maybe this guy needs to fight at, at middleweight. I don't know if, if that's going to be the move for him, although we've seen him compete at, at middleweight. And, and you could also argue that the, the pathway, I mean, it's it's not like a super deep list of contenders that Adesanya has not beaten already. So, um, you know, that 
is an option uh, for Chamayev. But do you feel like this this weight cutting issue is does does Chamayev come out of this weekend um, in a negative sense, or do you think this this performance this was a strong weekend for Chamayev or somewhere in the middle? Uh, I'm going to go somewhere in the middle because it was a strong performance, but it was against somebody that uh, no one would have expected to be competitive with. Uh, Chimeyev just based on their stylistic differences in the first place so it it was a strong win yes but it was against a non-ranked fighter who I, I don't think very many people would have predicted to put up much of a fight against him in the first place so again it was a bad weight miss and when he was in a position to headline a card like this against a name as big as Nate Diaz I definitely think the UFC is going to look at that and say okay we put this guy in a hell of a spot we gave him a gimme and he kind of blew the opportunity, he made us uh, blow up this entire card, really. I want to see him against one of our top contenders. So far, he's fought one top contender in the division. It was Gilbert Burns. It was a fantastic fight that could have went either way. Okay, let's see him in a five-round fight against Colby Covington. Or if he's out for a while, then maybe the loser of Usman Edwards three. Yeah, let, let's not forget that you know a month ago, this card had Nate Diaz and Hamzat Chimaev as the main event. There was no Ferguson Lee Jingliang fight. There was no Daniel Rodriguez Kevin Holland fight. Like had had that fight fallen apart without those two fights that had just recently been added, th- this is not a pay per view card. Like Nate Diaz is not fighting your your next uh, welterweight option on this show. Who I, I don't even know who that that would be uh, off the top here. Like you you lose that main event. I mean, there's no way you can put this on pay per view. So that is, you know, they got extremely lucky that they had, number one, those two fights to at least mix and match with, and an incredible amount of influence that they could convince these all these fighters to take new opponents on 24 hours notice, which is fairly remarkable that that could get pulled off. And it tells you the the level of control that UFC has with, with its fighters, because in like th- this would not be happening in in a boxing setting. Yeah, I don't think Nate Diaz versus Johan Lanius would have uh, been a great headliner for this card uh, if it were to come down to that. No, this before they added uh, the, the the other two main card fights that uh, uh, we, we'll get to. This was a really bad pay per view on paper, and even going into the event, like I said, I didn't think this was a uh, fantastic card. But uh, I, was, I don't think was, this is doing like t- some people believe. Like Nate Diaz, this is, thing is going to do blockbuster numbers. It's like, I. I do not see this being some gigantic number. Like no. I think it'll be, you know, at at a like whatever your average is for for this year. Like I see this being a very average show. For yeah, UFC. so do I. I think they probably did get a boost in these last couple of days, but not one that you would associate with a huge name that you might still call Nate Diaz. Next was the poor leech, Lee Jingliang, ah. taking on Daniel Rodriguez. So. Li Jingliang weighed in at 170.5 pounds for his fight with Tony Ferguson against Daniel Rodriguez, who weighed 179 pounds for his catchweight fight against Kevin Holland. So I don't know if you, anyone has seen the clip of Li Jingliang, who was featured on Embedded, getting this beautiful suit for the press conference. And then they've got the camera on him as he's just about to come onto the stage in his nice suit. He's like uh, gesturing to the crowd. And then he's informed... Uh, no, no, we're cutting the press conference. That suit. I hope you have a receipt. This poor guy. And then he has this fight and gets, I, I mean, a decision that was a pretty contentious one. Um, 
where he loses by split decision to Daniel Rodriguez on scores of 29-28 twice and then one scorecard of the same for uh, G uh, for for Lee. But it it started off, I mean, first of all, the size discrepancy like Rodriguez looked much much bigger and on top of that, like all this is thrown at Lee Jingliang and you're fighting a southpaw. So um do your homework tonight. I mean, this is all, uh, this is yeah. nuts. Like, it's a great story when someone can overcome all this. But when you like you, you lose the fight, you just you have so many disadvantages thrown at you. It's almost comical what this guy had. Like, it was the fact he was in a competitive situation in this fight. And then the scorecard turns out the way it is. I mean, it's just if this guy had no luck, uh, th- that would have been an improvement. It, of the six fighters who had their uh, belts altered on this card, he was the one who drew the uh, the short end of the stick, so to speak. It, it was just uh, from from fighting Tony Ferguson, a big name that he likely would have been able to beat at this point in his career. It would have been a, a career-defining win for him on on his biggest stage to this point. Instead, fighting Daniel Rodriguez, who had a 10-pound size advantage on him, uh, third from the top. Uh, just a dreadful situation for him, really. A lot of low kicks from uh, Jing Liang in the opening round, and Ro- Rodriguez is is throwing pretty consistently. There was this glancing counter left by Rodriguez that, in the moment, looked significant, and then in the replay was you know not not a very significant strike. I- into the second we go, uh, Jing Liang's continuing with inside leg kicks. He's definitely the quicker of the two, and that and that's helping here. Uh, and then connects with a counter right, which I thought was the best shot of of the round for him. The third uh, sees uh, Jing Liang going to the body. He's not slowing down. But it's Rodriguez who's really powering up with his jabs, going to the body, lands with a counter, and uh, his jabs were very, very successful in, in this round. So I had it 29-28 uh, for Jing Liang. When, when you look at the, uh, like the UFC stats coming out of this, like it, it does paint a pretty um, even picture. But in watching the, this fight, to me, Eric, like I, I thought it was a pretty... Like I, I did not feel like this was this uh, this nail biter of a decision I was awaiting. But um, how did you score this fight? Uh, I scored the fight twenty nine twenty eight for Lee as well. Uh, I, I do see the case for giving uh, Rodriguez rounds one and three. I, I wasn't one of the people who were overly upset at the decision, but uh, I, I thought personally Lee was the more active fighter, especially throughout the first two rounds. He did very good work attacking the body and uh, lead leg of Rodriguez, while Rodriguez's pace seemed to be a bit slower. He was certainly the more accurate fighter, picking his shots carefully, mostly targeting the head. Um it was bad luck for Lee, who had a lot of bad luck this week. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, unfortunate for him. I think a lot of people thought he won the fight. But I, I also, like, I- I'm not going robbery on this one either. Like, I think when you look at the stats, that first round was close enough. Um, it's not like he had a 30-27 going against him. But uh, even when Rogan interviewed Daniel Rodriguez, like, th- this was not a man who felt like... Like a lot of times you'll see these decisions and the winning fighters, of course, what controversy was there? That was not Daniel Rodriguez. I think he realized it's like, okay, I, I got one here that I wasn't necessarily expecting, but uh, a win for Daniel Rodriguez and not a loss that I think too many people are going to hold against Lee Jingliang for all the different reasons. You can put many asterisks uh, next to this fight. But no asterisks or controversy attached to this next one. Arena Aldana and Macy Chason at 140 pounds. A lot of catchweight fights on this card, including this one. So the first round sees a dominant performance from Aldana. She's landing with, with her right hand, and then Chason shoots in right into an arm bar, and it's suddenly getting hyperextended, and Aldana is just holding on. She's landing strikes. She then loses the arm bar, but closes off the round with some very 
big strikes. I went 10-8 for Aldana in this opening round. Uh, the second round, though, it's a, a reversal of fortunes because now uh, Chason starts off w- with the takedown and Aldana used her leg to sweep, trying to control the heel. And as they scramble, Chason gets the back with a body triangle, triangle and she's dropping all of these elbows to the side of the head. She mounts Aldana, continues with elbows. So a very strong round for Chason. You could argue if, if this was enough for a 10-8. I only went 10-9 for Chesson, but we essentially had two strong rounds for each uh, that sets the table for round three, where uh, they're, they're striking in the middle. Chesson gets a takedown, and with that, Aldana off her back lands this up kick, and Chesson just goes down, and she's grabbing her midsection. And this was one of the most unique stoppages, where it was an up kick to the liver that stops Macy Chesson at 221 of the third round. Uh, people were confused, but it was, I, I assumed it was a liver shot, and the replay confirmed that. Um, a, a stunning finish, and this is going to be one of the weirder candidates, I feel, for like a uh, stoppage of the year, because it was very impressive. This was crazy. I I was with the crowd. I saw the, it happen, and I was like, oh, what happened? Did she kick her low there? And uh, Aldana herself's like, yeah, I, I wasn't sure where that kick landed in our post-fight interview. But as the replay show, it was just a heel digging into Shiasone's liver, and she goes down, just crumbles in pain. It was one of the most unique finishes you've seen this year this felt like this felt like an unranked heavyweight mma finish like if you didn't watch the undercard and i told you that chris barnett versus jake collier oh yeah it ended with a heel kick to uh the liver and you're like oh yeah that sounds about right this was crazy this is one of my favorite finishes of the year to this point yeah we haven't seen aldana since july of last year and that was a fight where she missed weight so a big return for for aldana um fighting at a, at a catch weight no less but um yeah get, gets her I get. I think this really reinvigorates uh, Aldana with a really showcase win. Got a performance bonus out of this, and and also had to deal with with an opponent that was uh, like coming in heavier here that they had to move to a catchweight. Johnny Walker and Iwan Kudalaba. Um, we'll talk about Johnny Walker's uh, post fight uh, treatment afterwards. A very very bizarre story that that came out, but. Uh, this one I figured was was unlikely to get out of the first round, and it was a coin toss of like who would be the one victorious here. I never put any faith into Johnny Walker having a solid game plan um, that he's not just going to throw caution to the wind on. Um, but he he is out here. He's got uh, John Kavanaugh in his corner, and Kudalaba catches his leg and gets a trip takedown. And Kudalaba unsuccessfully goes for the armbar. Uh, Walker is up, slams him down, and then takes his back with a neck crank and there's some hand fighting going on, but then Walker sinks in the choke and Kudalaba is struggling and finally taps out at 437 of the first round. And then Johnny Walker, a man who has had shoulder problems in the past does the worm. And I think everyone was holding their breath, waiting for this guy who just uh, disciplined performance gets a submission <laughs> performance bonus coming is this guy going to blow out his shoulder doing his celebration after the fight? It would be the most Johnny Walker uh, dramatic turn of events, but seemed to come out of this worm it, execution. It's happened unscathed. before. The, the last time he did the worm as his post-fight celebration, he tore out his shoulder and he was out for months. So I think everybody watching this was thinking about that, like, oh my God, he is about to blow it. But uh, thankfully, he uh, came out of this dangerous, dangerous celebration unscathed. This was must win for Johnny Walker to stay relevant in the light heavyweight division. He is he has had lost what four of his last five. So this would have been um, 
I, I wouldn't say like necessarily like he's an entertaining fighter, but you're losing five of six in this light heavyweight division. Like his his days in the UFC, he might have been uh, knocking on PFL's door for their next season to find out about any uh, open slots next season, if that were the case. But uh, gets the win here, so uh, uh, you know, stay stays afloat in the 205 pound picture. Yeah, Cuda Love is a similar fighter in the sense that going, you never know what his game plan is going to be. You never know how, what he's going to look like. And and if going into this fight, you told me it was going to end in the first round, a finish either way, I would not have expected him to be submitted by Johnny Walker uh, so quickly. But uh, an impressive pr- performance from Walker, one that he was uh, desperately in need of. And his opponent, Cuda Love, needed a win here, too. He's in a very similar position in the division. And uh, this was a rough loss for him. So uh, perhaps his days of... Uh, mixing it up with the higher ranked light heavyweights are behind him. Yeah, I mean the, he now has a record in the UFC of five, seven, and one. So I mean when when you're under five hundred and you've got that that many fights, it's definitely you're you're looking at what the the future will be of a uh, one Iwan Kudalaba. Uh, we'll go to the prelims now. Hakeem Dawadu, another fighter that missed weight, taking on Julian Arosa uh, at 149.5 pounds is what uh, Dawadu weighed. So that was our, our latest catchweight fight. And Dawadu was fined 30% of his purse for missing weight. Uh, but he took on Julian Arosa, who, you know, he has had nine fights in the UFC and he's coming off wins against Charles Dor- Jordan and Steven Peterson, um, but had to me, a very, very strong performance here. He was just lighting up Dawadu early with uh, short uppercuts, and you could see that uh, Dawadu is hurt, and a lot of great strikes inside of the clinch. He wobbled Dawadu and then went for a flying knee. So big opening round from Arosa. Into the second, uh, Dawadu lands with a, a right elbow strike, uh, but Arosa gets the takedown, moves to his back, and then... Uh, Drops down with Arosa staying on his back and landing elbows from behind. And the third, certainly a more tentative round for Julian Arosa, which gave the opening Daniel Cormier was looking for of talking about, listen, this is what happens if we had open scoring. Guy's going to put his foot on the gas or on the, on the brake pedal, uh, in, in the third round. So he just went off about open scoring, even though we don't have open scoring here. And, uh, Julian Arosa won the round and the fight 30 27 across the board. Um, so Rosa's uh interesting case. This is a guy who lost his first three fights in the UFC, and I think a lot of people rid him off from that point forward. But since then, he's won six of his last seven fights, and he's kind of established himself as one of the most entertaining fighters in that division. So uh I think he shed that label that he perhaps uh, put onto himself early in his UFC run as perhaps someone who wasn't going to go very far in the division. And by being a guy like Hakeem Dawadu, who at one point I ranked rated quite highly perhaps his stock has fallen in recent years but a very impressive win for rosa who's turning into a fairly impressive fighter the canadian killer here julian arosa jordan now dawadu we we got a stat actually that three of the 14 canadians on the roster were were on this card uh 14 canadians on the roster wow i don't think i would have even expected that much at this point to be honest with you Yes, we'll, we'll get to we're, we're we're saving the uh the main event for for the end here. Uh, Eric, yes, man, yes, of course. Um, yeah, I I think it's a great point that you know um Julian Arosa kind of got off to this really rough start and Dawadu. I mean, it, people were like super high on him for like years before he got to to the UFC. But you know, a loss and, and a weight miss definitely this this was a. Uh, Certainly a, a step back for uh, Hakeem Dawadu, but uh, an entertaining fight for the, the time it lasted. And Julian Arosa, very interesting to see w- what his 
what his upside is at featherweight because with a streak like that you would hope he gets you know tested at like the next level in his in his next fight uh Gilton almeida versus anton turkali was next at 220 pounds all right the uh the division that uh, for, for years, it's like there, we, we, there, there's no cruiserweight division in, in UFC. Well, we got it for, for one night here. Um, Almeida is a BJJ black belt. And uh, to watch this guy, he just comes in, gets the takedown almost effortlessly. And he instead of like going with strikes, he just smothers Turkali on his back like he's lying. It's like this was like a snake that was just waiting to... Uh, wait for his prey to make a mistake and he was going to capture him it's all control and then suddenly he works for the head and arm he's like faking out Turkali for with like one move and then gets mount and then starts dropping strikes and gets the rear naked choke and the submission at 427 of the first round um he said afterwards he wants to compete at heavyweight uh Turkali is a light heavyweight but because this this was not a weight cutting issue this was this uh this was an opponent switch because Shamil Abdur Himov was supposed to fight Almeida, but Turkali took it on short notice and they had to make it 220 pounds when they signed the the new fight. But yeah, Almeida, is, he was definitely one of the prospects that they focused upon and the biggest favorite on this card. He was minus 660 coming into this. Yeah, not shocking. Almeida has looked like an absolute monster in his three fights to this point. He's, he's had three three fights across three divisions, if you want to count this. And he has defeated all of those opponents with ease, submitting them all in the first round. Uh, he's I don't know whether his future will lie at light heavyweight or heavyweights. Either way, he is going to dominate a lot of fighters. Like, there are ranked fighters in both divisions. I'd already pick him over. Uh, we'll see what his ceiling is, but he's certainly showed a, a ton of potential so far. Yeah, I mean, the... The, the 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 submission um just game of his is going to take him very far he weighed he weighed 216 and a half pounds i would certainly look at like maybe you're just looking at favorable fights but this is a guy who i i like 205 seems to be like that would be a very comfortable weight for him to be competing at uh, yeah, and it's not exactly the toughest road to title contention at light heavyweight right now. So uh, that's what I'd suggest he goes. But the man seems content to fight at heavyweight for the time being. Jamie Pickett against Dennis Talulin at middleweight. Um, two men who have the distinction of making weight for their contracted weight uh, for, for this. So this is one of our rare weight class fights on, on this particular show. Uh, both men, uh, 34 years of age. Um, there, there's a flurry by Talulin in the beginning, and he puts Pickett against the cage, landing with this right hand over the top, uh, but then kicks Pickett low. And this was all, always uh, this is always on your your Joe Rogan bingo card for a broadcast. Is uh, let's let's take a look at that low blow, and then he shows the rebound. I don't know, I don't know about that one. It's like the, I, I, I just I just love he the man has never seen a low blow that he's not going to question. Not once. Every know. low blow in the history of this sport, he needs to see the replay to see if this is legit or that man is faking. And ninety nine point nine percent of the time, uh, the low blow was legitimate. I mean, I'm not going to say that guys would take advantage of this, but like this was the first round. Pickett was not in all that much trouble, and as soon as he hit, he was pretty much telling Mike Beltran, "Like I'm good to go. I'm good to go. I don't need to rest." It's like the, I don't think the system was being gamed here. The man seemed to be genuinely injured in a sensitive area the second round continues and Tallulah goes for uh, kicks to the body some short elbows but then he hits Pickett low again fire up the replay 
No dispute on this one. Rogan is giving him this one. He is giving him the benefit of the doubt that he's now been kicked in the pills twice. Uh, and Beltron, Mike Beltron, deducts a point here from Tallulan. And so Tallulan comes out of this, and he is just aggressive as hell for the rest of this round uh, after this point deduction. He puts him against the fence and ends up dropping Pickett with two knees to the face, sends him down, follow-up shots, and gets the stoppage with eight seconds to go in the second round. So... um while open scoring might uh, temper aggressions, uh, Eric, point deductions just ramp them up. So maybe we can get a whole overhaul of the system here um, wow. that, that suits Daniel Cormier's tastes in uh, action. Tululin was furious when that point was deducted, and he came out and said, like, okay, I'm finishing the fight right now then, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, the first round of this fight was rather competitive, but into round two, Tululin just took over, uh, picked up a good finish against a more experienced UFC opponent, uh, picked up his first win in the promotion here. And then the people's main event of Jake Collier and Chris Barnett. Chris Barnett has, well, he shares the distinction with Justin Taffa of being the only heavyweights to miss weight. And for people who do not know, uh, Chris Barnett is five foot nine at heavyweight. <laughs> he came in 267.5 pounds. He was that final 1.5 pounds. He just couldn't do it. So we get a catch weight, a catch weight at 267.5 pounds. Dare I say a catch weight we will never see ever again in UFC history. Uh, I dare say you're right, but the heavyweight division never ceases to amaze me. So so this was, I mean, the thing is, Chris Barnett, if there's ever one guy that you're just going to excuse, this was the man who just came out and, and what a what a performance this man had. So Collier drops him early. And he throws a head kick. It's an insane pace that they start off with uh, before they just settle things on their feet. Uh, but Barnett is cut over his left eye, and the left eye is shut. Um, and and this, this would be very, very visible throughout the fight. Uh, but Barnett comes back with strikes. Collier gets a takedown, mounts him from behind. He's landing ground and pound. He can't apply the choke. This was just an insane first round between these two that was that much more emphasized when I repeat. They were competing at 267 and a half pounds because Collier Collier was right on the nose at 265. It's not like this was a a mid-sized heavyweight. So Gileton Almeida, take note of, of these these guys, the, the size that you will be giving up potentially. Yeah. Former middleweight Jake Collier. <laughs> Dude, they brought this up that Jake Collier was fighting at middleweight when he came into the UFC. And you look at this guy and it's like, how? How was this guy uh, 80 pounds lighter at one point? Uh, he used to be in really good shape. That's, that's why he was 60 pounds lighter. This, this round was nuts. So the in-between rounds, they do a close-up on Barnett, and the left side of his face, like, it looks... They're, they're speculating it could be nerve damage. Uh, they, later, Dana White said he suffered a nasal fracture, and he was actually transported after the fight, so he didn't do any interviews with the media. Uh, but it looked concerning. Like, it looked like he had, like, partial paralysis in, in his face. Like, that's what it looked like, like his his... His face was like drooping on the side. So the round continue, or the the round begins, the second round, and Barnett just unloads with strikes. This whole arena is chanting Barnett. He stuffs a takedown and goes to the back. He's landing landing strikes, mounts Collier, and dude, Collier absorbed like 
an insane amount of strikes and referee Mark Smith was giving Collier every opportunity. He's like, you've got to move. You've got to move. And Collier, he was he was trying to like shrimp off his back. Uh, but finally, after God knows how many blows he took, uh, Barnett got the stoppage victory and proceeds to hit this giant somersault splash onto the canvas and the ring shook. And Chris <laughs> Barnett wins by TKO at 224 of the second round. Uh, this fight was crazy. I mean, th- this was perhaps the, the the height of unranked heavyweight fights. You get a five foot nine heavyweight who missed weight against a former middleweight who came in at two sixty five, and they went out there and they traded hands like madmen until one of them was finished. Uh, it, it was remarkable that neither men went down in the first round, but uh, Chris Barnett pulls off the win, and he the crowd absolutely loved this man. He was so popular on this show. He does the greatest interview after. He's dancing. On the way back, he gets handed two giant beers from fans. I mean, he's just such an entertaining personality um, that really, if, if ever there was a time to to excuse a guy uh, missing weight that he's eligible for a bonus, it would have been Chris Barnett. But, um, you know, I, I, I think he came out of this. You know, he, this is the guy who, uh, for folks that might not remember, Defeated John Volante with with a spinning wheel kick last year. So this is a guy that, I mean, it's just um, a very unique heavyweight. A very much so, uh, and a very entertaining one. So for the the early prelims, uh, I'm just going to go over the results, and then we can uh, cite a- any highlights here. Uh, there's one fight I definitely want to talk about, but we had four decisions uh, to kick off the night with uh, Johan Laness beating Darian Weeks by split decision, Elise Reed over Melissa Martinez by unanimous decision, Alatung Haley over Chad and Helliger by unanimous decision, and Norma Dumont beating one and zero Danielle Wolf, uh, a former three time. U.S. national boxing champion who had had one MMA fight before this. Um, she had a 53 and five record at 152 pounds in boxing. Uh, but this was, um, she felt very much out of her depth in in this fight, Eric. Yeah, I'm not discounting anything that she's done in the boxing world, but for a 39 year old fighter with only one professional yeah. MMA fight to go in there with Norma Dumont, who is an experienced UFC fighter, I mean, it. The first round was pretty slow, but this turned into a very uncompetitive fight as it continued, a very yeah. one-sided one, even on the feet. That, that's it. So much of this was contested on the feet. And uh, like Danielle Wolf, like her first MMA fight, it was two years ago on, on top of it. And it really does shine a light on just like not the lack of depth at women's featherweight, no depth at women's featherweight. Like this is almost like a default number one contenders fight. Like that's how little... The, this division exists in any meaningful way. Like you, if Amanda Nunez didn't have anything going on and just suddenly wanted to fight in December, Norma Dumont would probably get the title fight. Uh, you're probably right. I can already see it. UFC uh, 284 Nunez versus Dumont, uh, 53 buys. But yeah, th- that's it. Was just a um, such a discrepancy in skill. And I mean, it's not like Danielle Wolf is just like one and zero tells the tale. Like she has a very you know significant boxing background. But you know this this is a different sport. And at, at thirty nine to just get uh, beat in in this fashion, it was a. Uh, uh, I, I had it thirty twenty six. As did one judge. I thought the third round was a ten eight, and then the others having it uh, thirty twenty seven. But. Um, any other performances that that stood out from you, including a, a close fight between Canadian Johan Laness with Patrick the Predator Cote in his corner uh, with Darian Weeks? 
Uh, always good to see uh, Patrick Cote. Um, that that fight didn't stick out too much. I mean, I, I did score. I was in the minority that scored that fight for weeks, but it, it was a close. It was really close. I kind of yeah. leaned towards weeks myself. I was kind of going back back and forth on that first round. Um, Alatung Haley, I yeah. mean, he he looked good in his fight. I would say of all the performances on the, on the early prelims, like Norma Dumont was just you know outclassing her opponent. But in terms of just you know s- someone to at least keep some eye on, you know he he's he's looked good in his improvements. This was his uh, eighth fight in the UFC. Uh, yeah, that's the one I wanted to get to. Alatang Haley, I mean, he's been a very entertaining fighter since he joined the promotion, but you can see the improvements he's making to his game. He looked so quick here, just moving in and landing his shots before Ann Hel- uh, Helker could really respond. Um, I thought he looked great throughout this fight. I scored every round in his favor, and uh, he's looked great in his last few fights in particular. I think he's won uh, two or three in a row now. So the performance of the bon- uh, the performance of the night bonuses went to Nate Diaz, Arena Aldana, Johnny Walker, and Jalton Almeida, all getting uh, fifty thousand dollars extra. I hope Lee Jing Liang was compensated somewhere at some point for his for his week. And we uh, we skimmed over it though, but one of the more bizarre stories was John Cavanaugh tweeting after that Johnny Walker and the team were kind of ushered out of the building right after the fight, and he's got photos and a video of them literally like he's in his fight gear and he's out there without like his shoes and everything like it was like they didn't even get to shower or anything it looked like it was very bizarre and when it was brought up to dana white like he didn't have an answer either he kind of just like laughed it off like yeah we must uh, i don't know what the issue was it's very strange I don't really know what to add i mean dana said something about the covid protocols uh but uh don't really know what went what what went on there, uh, especially uh, forcing Walker to leave the arena without his shoes on. Um, I, I feel like there must be some details to the situation that we just uh, it was just odd, released, but yeah, very was... strange, very very strange. So maybe we'll get a follow up on that. All right, so that was UFC 279, and just looking ahead next weekend, they return to the 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 surging fight capital of the world or the fight building of the world, the UFC Apex, with uh, Corey Sandhagen taking on Song Yadong in the main event. They're also looking for a new opponent for Sadiq Yusuf. Then in two weeks' time, three weeks' time, October 1st, it is Mackenzie Dern against Yao Shaonan, along with Cody Garbrandt fighting uh, uh, Hani Yaya. And the next... Uh, oh, sorry, we have another fight night in there. Alexa Grasso and Vivian Araujo, which is our new main event, which which tells you these uh, these Apex cards, y- you can headline them with just about anything because this was the one that was going to have Jared Cannonier and Sean Strickland. So Vivian Araujo headlining her first UFC card. If you combined these three cards, you would get an okay fight night. Um, this is a very rough stretch that I'm yeah. not looking forward to. Cub Swanson is uh, on that card as well on October 15th. Uh, but the next time we will be here, UFC 280. It's not until October 22nd, and it's an afternoon card. So we're going to be looking to do a show uh, live that evening on Saturday, October 22nd. This is the one I want to spend just a few minutes on because it's uh, it's a very good card. Uh, Charles Oliveira and Islam Makachev for the lightweight championship, and then Aljamain Sterling defending the bantamweight title against TJ Dillashaw. Um, I find the most... Entertaining part about Charles Oliveira is, number one, he never has dull fights, and every fight is, like, it's, it, it, he's a totally beatable champion, which makes it super intriguing, and he's got an incredible opponent here in Islam Makachev. Charles Oliveira is such a unique fighter, because every fight, uh, you see him look beatable, 
and by the end of it, he feels like an unstoppable force who can overcome anything. Uh, the guy is, of course, known for his jujitsu. He has the most submissions in UFC history by a mile. He might never get caught on that record. And he's turned into maybe the most dangerous fighter in the entire division on the feet. I mean, he uh, basically knocked out Justin Gaethje before going to submit him, knocked out Michael Chandler. Uh, he was getting the better of Dustin Poirier with his body shots and their fights. He is uh, the most dangerous fighter at 155. That being said, Islam Makachev is a guy who has looked uh, fa- fantastic throughout his last 10 fights or so. Uh, he's had very few competitive ones in that stretch. So does that domination continue against a guy who's so dangerous in every aspect of the sport? I don't know. But it's a fantastic title fight. Uh, Sterling and Dillashaw. I, I, I think Sterling had... You know, the, the best performance of his career in the last fight uh, with Piotr Jan and with, with TJ Dillashaw, this is a very, this is a very tough title defense for Aljamain Sterling. But I, I think that, that that second fight with Jan, I think, gained a lot of appreciation and respect for, for Sterling's wrestling and yeah, and, and how that matches with uh, TJ Dillashaw as well. Uh, TJ Dillashaw is a very well-rounded fighter. There isn't really any aspects of the sport in which he uh, isn't uh, proficient. Uh, this is going to be a really hard fight to call. Uh, TJ is getting old. That's the one thing that's working against him here. There's been a lot of uh, time off. There's been a lot of injuries, and he is 37 or 38 years old at this point. That that being said, I feel like he has uh, he's stronger in some very important aspects of the game than Aljamain Sterling is. I'm I'm leaning towards him going into that fight, but uh, after Aljo's performance against Peter Jan in their second fight, I'm I'm not certain in the slightest. Jan is on this card and he's fighting Sean O'Malley, which is a really <laughs> interesting fight that, um, I mean, they're kind of putting all their chips in on Sean O'Malley because if he wins this, he is, he is like front of the line at, at Bantamweight at that point. Um, but I am looking at, at Piotr Jan as an extremely tall task for, for Sean O'Malley in, in his career at this, at this stage. Uh, the narrative for Sean O'Malley has been uh, his lack of high quality opposition, even though he's e- even since he's proved himself to be a very talented fighter himself. To, so to see him go from uh, a fight against Pedro Munoz, who is a, a very aging fighter on his way down in the division at this point, to the top ranked contender Piotr Jan, a very interesting matchmaking decision. And it's very much a, a sink or swim type of fight for him, because if he beats Piotr Jan, yeah, he's going to be one of the top-ranked contenders in the division. He might even get the next title shot. But if he loses this fight, even though it's against the top-ranked uh, fighter in the division, he's going to lose a lot, a lot of his momentum. And it might be a much longer road back to the top than it would be if he just fought perhaps the 10th-ranked guy. Yeah, I'm always interested in these types of fights where somebody, it looks like maybe this is too early in their career to be fighting someone at this level. But when you're thrown into that deep end you typically are going to get guys who are going to prepare as hard as they ever had for a fight and what kind of performance you see come out of them in this as well. Um, so some other interesting fights on this card. We won't go through all of them. Uh, Benil Dariush is fighting a Matus Gamrat. Bilal Muhammad against Sean Brady is a great fight at 170 pounds. Uh, Volkan Ozdemir and Nikita Krylov as well on this card. So um, yeah, it's it's a very good card. Like the, the main card looks very 
strong. And I think both, both title fights have a lot of interesting questions attached to them. They also made it official on the broadcast. It had already been reported, but Dustin Poirier and Michael Chandler for UFC 281 in November at Madison Square Garden. That's the card that has Israel Adesanya and uh, Alex Pereira for the middleweight title. So some big pay-per-view cards that they have to close out the year. Yeah, 281 uh, sounds like it will be a very violent card. Uh, it sticks together, that is. All right. Well, there you go. That was UFC 279. Eric, I think this I think this went swell. You know, I, I think so, too. I, I love the fact that uh, the sun is out as I look out the window. It's not uh, it's not three in the morning, uh, but there you go. That's going to wrap up the UFC 279 post show. I will be back on a Monday night with Rewind a Raw with Mr. Wei Ting. And for those on the site, you can check out WrestleNomics. That's going to be dropping later today. And we have a new edition of Postmarks out on the on the Patreon feed. That is free for everyone to check out as uh, David Myers and Bruce Lord welcome Dr. Alex Patel. So I encourage everyone to go check out that. Uh, what's what's the rest of your day looking like, Eric? What are you going to do now? It's not it's not three in the morning. You're not going to just collapse from nine hours of fight related discussion and writing. I don't know. I'm lost. I might just I might just have to rewatch UFC uh, two seventy nine. I don't know what to do with myself. Everyone, go back and rewatch Chris Barnett. Okay, it's going to put a smile on your face uh, to go back and and watch the the star of UFC two seventy nine. Uh, but that will wrap it up for Eric. I am John, and that concludes our UFC 279 post-show. Goodbye.